Greg, why don't you go ahead and read the thing? Oh, well, I'm going to. Thank you. The race known as Le 24 Eux de Mans, the Le Mans 24, is one of the oldest and most dangerous sports car races in the world. It's a 24-hour-long endurance race held on a 13-kilometer-long race course loop which runs in and around the suburbs of the city of Le Mans in northern France. Even today, it's made up of both purpose-built racetrack and regular old highway, complete with vicious curves, a hairpin turn, and a pair of right-angle corners. Each year, hundreds of thousands of fans turn out to watch amateur and professional drivers speed down the highway-slash-racetrack. But the winner isn't necessarily the fastest car or the most aggressive driver. Le Mans is an endurance race in which high-performance cars run at their top speed for a continuous 24 hours, with drivers pushing their vehicles and themselves to cover as much distance as possible in the day-long race. Today, the racetrack is meticulously maintained and spectators are protected from the cars, some of which will read speeds of over 200 miles per hour on the famous Moussin Strait, by fences, ditches, walls, barriers, and stands that are set well back from the course. But that wasn't always the case. In the 1950s, looser safety regulations and an outdated course led to dangerous conditions for both drivers of increasingly fast cars and increasingly high numbers of spectators. In 1955, it all came to a head. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the 1955 Le Mans Disaster. Thank you so much. Yeah. This is fun. <laughs> this is not super fun. I apologize no, in advance. Right. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, professional manager of Amateur Motorsports Division here at Relative Disasters Automotive. And I'm her brother, Greg, team lead for racetrack safety at the Relative Disasters Insurance Group. Thank you so much for that nice overview of a very strange and interesting race. We are going to do a man versus machine episode. I think this is our first race car disaster. Uh, yeah. Uh, this episode is at the suggestion of our listener, Daniel. Daniel, thanks for pointing us in the direction of this fascinating and horrifying story. Thanks, Daniel. I, I just think race cars themselves, like the machines themselves, are fascinating. Mm -hmm. Super fascinating. And I went down a lot of rabbit holes. Oh, excellent. Yay. Research. Do we have, do we have uh, a Warren? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be nine hours long tonight. All right. Welcome to part or one of our Or maybe we should just go for series. 24. Yes, that would have been smart. A 24-part series on the Le Mans crash. Darn it. Uh, so today we're going to be taking a look at a crash that occurred during the 1955 running of the 24 Hours of Le Mans race, yeah. which is arguably the world's most brutal and dangerous car race. 99 yep. years old this year, Greg. Oh, hey, happy birthday. Happy almost centennial. Yep. Our main sources for this episode are articles. I looked at The Tragedy at Le Mans, which is a really good Sports Illustrated article by Bruce Newman that came out in the 80s. Okay. Uh, a GQ article by Benji Goodhart called Le Mans 1955, The Disaster That Changed Motorsport Forever. Yep. And an excellent New York Times article by Brad Spurgeon called On Auto Racing's Deadliest Day. Eesh. So this isn't going to be a fun one is what you're telling me. 
It's interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's extremely terrible, yeah. All right. Well. So you give us a nice little overview. Uh, basically, the Le Mans race is one of the oldest and most dangerous car races in the world. It's annual. Yeah. It's held in the summer. There are usually around 60 cars competing in these incredibly complicated classes, which I do not understand. Uh, there's one for prototype cars with like all kinds of cutting edge innovations. There's one for like modified versions of sports cars. Uh, and then there's a range of drivers. So there are amateur and professional drivers. So to make it more confusing, manufacturers will also have a bunch of entries across the classes. Right. They'll have like multiple versions of different cars, right? Like, right, and these are the big European car makers. So right. Ferrari, Maserati, um, BMW, Mercedes, one, right? BMW, yep. yeah, Audi, uh, Porsche. So if they make a luxury the vehicle, guys. they throw something into this race. I believe every luxury car manufacturer ooh, ooh. has been in this Is race. Is there a Rolls Royce? <laughs> <laughs> That's the only one I didn't see on the list, no! but I would love that. <laughs> I just want some, like, dude in his 70s just trundling along, you know, like, not racing. In a really. Rolls? Yeah, in a Rolls, just being like, yeah. Mwahaha. Well, maybe a note for next year, Lamont. Yeah, organizers. seriously, get on that. Uh, these days, oh, also, you have to know that drivers compete in teams. It's not one right. person, one car. And it's teams uh, of three now, right? Because teams of two was too dangerous. People would right. fall asleep. Right, so... Kind it's an endurance terrifying. race for the car because right. you're like putting it through this incredibly complicated maneuvering like over and over and over again for 24 hours straight. And yeah, because it's so long, uh, people just realize that you can't do it by yourself. Right. There have to be three kind of drivers changing out over the course of the race. But okay. prior to 1955, you were allowed to drive solo for the whole race if that was your thing. Okay, that's insane, because speaking as somebody who's done a lot of driving in my life and mm -hmm. has had to pull some pretty long treks in pretty short mm -hmm. amounts of time, I, that is that is unsafe. Like, Would you want to drive for 24 hours straight? No. I, I've I can't think of anything that would motivate me. You know, the top prize yeah. is like 10,000 francs, <laughs> which is like... Wait, what? Not a lot of money. You don't get like millions and millions <laughs> of dollars for this? That's insane. No, it's really it's really an opportunity for auto manufacturers to show, show off, off how ideas. powerful yep. and nimble and how long their cars can go. So you're in this one at for 200 the miles per hour. Sure, okay. but as a driver, you know it's a big deal to win Le Mans. It's well, a big sure. deal to finish Le Mans. Right. Okay. Because not everybody um, will finish, obviously. No. Okay. One year, only six cars finished. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's instructive. I've done like driving stints of like 12, 14 hours at a, at a, at a time. And that's not fun. And, and that is not in a race car. So I can't yeah. imagine doing it under the stresses of like racing. <laughs> Bad See, enough going 60 miles an hour, terrifying going 200 miles an hour. Right. For that, for that amount of time. Yeah. And those curves, I mean, this racetrack is, is not an oval it's not like a nice nascar oval <laughs> right 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 no i've seen pictures of it it's it's literally like we're just gonna take this section and drive through town it's it's kind of Why insane not? it's insane to me that they're driving on the highway i understand that france has better highways than we have here <laughs> okay okay <laughs> fair i feel like it would be a good like mario kart level 
Absolutely. Okay. Or Grand Theft Auto. Or, well, GTA is not really a racing game, Ella. It's really more of an urban exploration You drive fast. Game. You drive fast. You do drive fast. So in 1955, most of the major European car manufacturers were competing. So the big guys that year were Mercedes-Benz, Jaguar, Porsche, Ferrari, Maserati, and Aston Martin from England. So these major manufacturers are competing, but they're competing on a racetrack that was really designed for the race cars of the 1920s. Okay, so when you couldn't go 200 miles an hour. No, top <laughs> speed was like 60 miles per hour the first year they ran this race. And you know the spectators were like, oh my god! Yep, that's too, that's too fast. <laughs> Let's go faster! Uh, so this track is only 35 feet wide. Whoa! And the pit station is built right on the track. Okay, yeah, I read that, and that's mm-hmm. madness. That's like, I couldn't picture it. I had to look at a schematic drawing. I was it's like, Wait right a on the track. Yeah. It's right on the track. Did they go you ahead and have over. like a bicycle lane as well? Like, come on. Absolutely, they do. Um, the pit is at, it's in this weird position where there's a little kink in the road, and there's no deceleration lane. Okay. So you literally just pull off the road, and you have to do it oh. extremely precisely, okay. and you get your pit stop taken care of, and then you zoom back out. Do 90% of the crashes happen with people doing that? Not necessarily. Okay, okay. fair enough. <laughs> um, but it is very dangerous, and the faster the cars get, you know, the faster they're trying to get over into the pit stop, Right. the less room there is for any kind of driver error. Sure. Okay. This year, Mercedes has entered this beautiful sports car called the 300 SLR. Okay. Just like a classic open 1950s sports car. You've got this long, streamlined hood covering 302 tiny horses. Uh-huh. Uh, teeny tiny seats. Yep. This adorable little, like, 10-inch tall windshield that barely covers the steering wheel. Oh and, uh, like I said, it's completely open on top. There's no roll bars. There's no roof. There's no seatbelt. There's no seatbelt. No, because drivers thought that you had a better chance of escaping a crash if you were thrown clear. That's not... I. It, so they would wear helmets, uh, but not seatbelts. Oh my god. You have to remember, there's no like airbag, there's no crumple zones. Right, right, like, right. If you get, no, I get hit it. in one of these cars... I, I, I get it, I get it, but still, that's... that. Wow, okay, alright, okay. Yeah, it's not safe, it's not a safe sport, Greg. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, this car is bright silver. It has a top speed of 180 miles per hour. Oof. It can reach that speed because it's also exceptionally light because the body of the car is made of a magnesium and aluminum alloy. Oh, we should probably say aluminium because it's made in England. <laughs> okay, fair. That's called electron. Oh, okay. There's a reason why cars are not made out of magnesium. We'll get into that. But uh, this is pretty cutting edge for 1955. Very cool. Very cool. And Mercedes has really high hopes for the 300 SLR because it's just won at the 1955 Mille Miglia. Okay. It assigns this beautiful car to the driving team of American John Fitch and French driver Pierre Levey. Okay. These drivers are both pretty famous and pretty experienced. John Fitch is 38. He's been racing professionally for five years. Okay. He's one of a handful of American drivers to win in European races. Oh, okay. Good for him. He's won that Italian race, the Mille Miglia. Okay. I apologize to our Italian listeners. Yep. I was going to say, can we get a couple German names in here too, so we can just go through the uh, countries of Europe and, and and your ears are going to hurt. Oh boy! All right. Okay, 
So John Fitch has won that Italian race, the Mio Miglia, and in 1953, he wins an endurance race in the American-made Cunningham race car. So Mercedes is really happy to have him on their team for this race. He's sure. one of the few drivers that has shown he can actually race a car for that length of time and do okay. Okay. Pierre-Eugène Alfred Bouillon, who uses the name Pierre Levey professionally okay. in uh, memory of his uncle, who is a race car driver. He is older. He's 49, Ooh. which makes him one of the extremely elder drivers in this race. Yeah. Uh, and he's been racing professionally since his 20s. Okay. That's a lot of in experience. In 1952, he races at Le Mans as a solo driver and makes it all the way to hour 23 when his car breaks down, ruining his four-lap lead and his chances of finishing. Uh, he would have been the uh, only person uh, to win <laughs> doing as a the solo driver. Yeah, wow. Apparently, he just like kept coming into his pit stop, and his relief driver would try and wave him down, and he would just drive off. <laughs> okay, that's pretty great. All right. He's hardcore. Okay. All right, so LeVay and Fitch have a strategy. They're going to drive at a set pace for the first 12 hours, and then they're going to drive really aggressively through the last 12 hours. Okay. They're kind of saving their car for the very end. So three hours into the race, LeVay is right where he wants to be. He's in sixth place. He's well behind the Jaguar and Ferrari teams that are trying to grab the lead from another Mercedes. But he's also not, like, pushing his car super hard, so he's... No, yeah. he's being very kind of laid back and sensible. He's giving them time to break down. He's playing the long game. I like it. Right, okay. right. You know, he's he's been around this course before. He knows sure. how it goes. Sure, uh, The end of lap 35 is supposed to be a pit stop for them. Okay. So the area is right by the main grandstand where spectators are packed into these wooden bleachers. Okay. And the pit stop is right off the track. There's no room to decelerate. It's also, as I said, it's at a little curve in the road, and there's no wall or fence or anything between the edge of the track and the bottom of the spectator sands. Yeesh. Okay. There's a little bit of space, and then there's like a knee-high dirt embankment, and that's it. So you really need to be on your toes to make uh, this stop safely. Okay. Uh, what happens next is it takes place very quickly, and if you look at the newsreel footage, it doesn't, you can't really tell what's going on, so I'm going to do my best to describe it. Okay. Uh, a Ferrari driver named Mike Hawthorne is just ahead of LeVay as they're approaching this stop. He needs to pull into the pit, but he's also vying with Juan Manuel Fangio, who's in another Mercedes car, okay. uh, for the lead. So he's trying to pass Fangio. And pull into the pit stop. And come in for a pit stop. Okay. And it's not clear if he realizes that he has to do this before he approaches, or if they kind of are signaling him as he approaches. Okay. There are two other drivers involved here. There is Pierre LeVay, who's coming up behind Mike Hawthorne, and an Austin Healy driver named Lance Macklin, who's between the two of them. So again, if you watch the newsreel footage, because they are filming from across the track, sure. it's very hard to see exactly what happens. Basically, Hawthorne taps the brakes, and Macklin, who's very close to hitting him, hits his brakes, and swerves left just a little. Okay. At the same time, Fangio slows down to let LeVay pass, and LeVay accelerates right into the back left of Macklin's Austin Healy. Oh, God. Okay. He's going about 150 miles per hour at this impact. So instead of just crashing into the back end of the Austin Healy, LeVay's Mercedes is launched into the air. He kind of, like, rolls up the back and just yep. flies up. Okay. 
The car rolls a couple times. It slams into a concrete stairwell. All you see on the footage is this little swerve and then just a ball of fire and car parts flying out of the smoke and into the grandstand. Okay. And they're at just the right angle to do massive a massive damage. amount of damage yep. to the crowd. God. So the car body stops, but the engine, the radiator, and that long, elegant hood just fly off and start slicing into the crowd. Oh, God. There's so much momentum that this debris keeps going for over 300 feet from the site of the crash. Okay. LeVay is killed instantly, yep. and so are 84 spectators in the grandstand. Another 120 people are injured badly enough to need medical help. Oh my god. So yeah. I, I was thinking like one or two people get hit with flying debris, but 84? You have to remember they're completely open to the track. So all of that force, all of that momentum just comes flying right into the crowd it's there's no there's oh, nothing god. protecting them oh, and they're packed god. in really closely because yep. they want to see the race yep. yep okay so the fireball that occurs on impact is caused by the mercedes rear fuel tank exploding remember how that car has yep. like the ultralight fancy mm. alloy body well magnesium is one of those weird metals that's actually flammable yep. which is why you don't use it in cars that's why you use it in flares really yeah magnesium flares oh i didn't know that yeah I mean, and a lot of other stuff, too. There's, like, industrial metalworking you can do with magnesium. I bet I bet it is super useful. Um, but, but not on a car. Well, you have to remember it's light and strong, and that's yeah. what they're going for. They're, no, like, I pushing the envelope with I these cars. I get cars. it. I get it. It's, it's, a, it's, uh, a, it's is like a, a concept. really high here. tech. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so as the fire gets hotter, the wreckage actually ignites. The magnesium in the bodywork actually catches on fire. Sure. The first rescue workers and firefighters on the scene pour water on it, which intensifies oh, the fire no. and causes it to burn for hours and also to shower the crowd with, with burning embers. Yep. So you have this intense fire, the spectator stand full of dead and horribly injured people, and LeVay's body lying on the track. It's just an absolute hellscape. Was there a concerted effort to evacuate the stands after the crash, or did people just sort of panic and trample on their way out? There wasn't a lot of panic, but I think that's okay. partly because so many people were injured to the point of not being able to panic. Oh, God, that's true, yeah. There doesn't seem to be that kind of mass crushing that yep. you see at, like, sports stadiums when yep. everyone's trying to use the same door. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so devastating, and it's so awful that people almost have to stay put and wait for rescue workers to get to them. Yeah. Okay. So the other three drivers, Macklin, Fangio, and Hamilton, all survived the crash. Okay. Macklin's driving his Austin Healey 100S, which is another one of those cars that's absolutely open, no roof, no seatbelts. Mm -hmm. And he spins out of control into the pit and then across the track. But his car doesn't flip and he's able to get out. But does he hit anybody as he's spinning through all this? No, and it's, it's wow. miraculous yeah. that he doesn't hit and then his car doesn't flip. And because, especially because the car went, essentially drove up and over his car, you know, he could have caught a wheel in the back of the head and that would have been it too. I mean, the physics, the physics are just are, absolutely. Yeah. And aerodynamics of vehicles. Uh, Hawthorne's car wasn't hit at all. And his team waves him away from the crash to do another lap before calling into the pit. What? <laughs> yep. They tried to well, keep the race going? They want him out of the way, okay. basically. They don't know what's happened, okay. but they don't want to okay. add another car into Right. This. Okay, that makes sense. I was going to say, but they didn't like, oh, here's your chance, bud. Go win this thing. Like, that's... Well, we'll put a pin in that and come back to it. No! 
Uh, Fangio, the other Mercedes driver, he wasn't hit at all. He later said that LeVay signaled him to pull around just before LeVay hit Macklin. Okay. And instinctively swerved to the right and accelerated. He just missed Hawthorne. He's interviewed in that Sports Illustrated article, and the quote is that he was close enough to feel the heat from the car as it passed. Uh, Fangio sees the crash, of course, and like Hawthorne, he doesn't want to slow down or stop and risk causing another crash, so he keeps going for another lap and gets out when he gets to the pit. Okay. So after the worst crash in motorsports history, the death of 85 people and a giant explosion plus a magnesium fire that can't be extinguished, you would think that the race organizers would stop the, stop race? the race. No. <laughs> that is not what happens. There's uh, never even a public announcement about the crash. What? Yep. And remember, the course is so long that there were yeah. spectators who didn't know about the crash until after the race was over. Oh my god, what? John Fitch, Pierre LeVay's driving partner, who was all suited up, he was preparing to jump into the car on that pit stop. Yeah. So he's a witness to the immediate aftermath of the crash. Okay. Uh, Even more horribly, he's chatting with LeVay's wife while they're waiting for him to come into the pit. Yeah. Fitch is absolutely traumatized by the crash. He's even more shocked that the race is continuing and that the Mercedes team is still competing. Oh my... Wow. Uh, yeah, that... That's mm, cold. That doesn't feel right, man. That feels like... No. You know what? Maybe let's uh, let's stop the race, come back to it another day. You don't Take just a moment. keep racing while there's a burning car and a like a hundred dead people sitting around, like... What was the, was there any, anything in the research about the, the, the race organizer's line of thinking on this? Yes. Okay. The reason why the race is continuing is really complicated. Okay. Uh, the Mercedes team is controlled by the company. Their manager does not have the authority to just pull them out. They have to call a meeting with the board. The board is in Germany. What? There has to be a vote and it all has to be done by phone because it's the middle of the night in Germany. What? So it takes until midnight before the manager gets permission to pull the other four Mercedes cars out of the race. And they're actually winning the race at this point. Two of their cars are in first and third place. Uh, they just take them right off the track. The whole Mercedes team just vanishes in the night. They don't just put the cars on trucks and drive it back to Germany. They don't compete at Le Mans again for 30 years. Uh-huh. Which sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, the organizers of the race just keep it going. They have a bunch of excuses after the fact that sound a little weaselly. Sure. First, they say they don't want to get sued by the participants. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Massive loss uh, of life, but, you know, sure. Okay. Then they say they kept it going because they didn't want to cause the uninjured spectators to panic and try to race out of those old grandstands as emergency services... <laughs> Are trying to get in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, sure. The race organizer also claims that he doesn't actually have the authority to stop the race. They'd have to get permission from his boss, and the boss just wasn't available. Uh huh. So they end up finishing this. This accident is is early on. It's like hour three. Yeah, yeah. Of the race, said it was they keep on. Yeah. They go the whole twenty four hours. Really, they finish the wow. Yeah. And the winning driver is Mike Hawthorne, the guy who, if he didn't cause the crash, was at least a factor in it. Well, that doesn't feel good. No, it 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 doesn't feel good. Uh, there's usually a big celebration. The race organizers skipped that, although Mike Hawthorne right. is photographed at the finish with a huge grin and a bottle of champagne just before everybody goes off to a funeral mass to remember the victims. 
You have to see this picture. Mike Hawthorne is like this really tall, really blonde, really good-looking British guy. Yeah. And he just looks really happy with his champagne. Now, is the car burning in the background of the picture? No, it's all like flowers. and Like, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. What bothers me is that all those other cars driving around had to have passed that scene yes! over and over and over again for another 21 hours. Yeah. I don't understand why that went on for as long as it did. It's really, really unsettling. It's, yeah, exactly. That, that that's It's one of those cases of like, you know, let's make sure we put the show ahead of human life. I don't like any of the reasons that they give for not no, canceling the race all, and not making an announcement. Yeah, those are all weasel races, weasel reasons. That's terrible. I don't know. I think when things are as inherently dangerous as race car racing, you kind of expect there to be some kind of accident or calamity you just don't expect it to be on this scale i mean i understand it if there's a crash and you just move the you know the charred husk of the car off the track and and take the driver to the hospital take the driver to the hospital and then you finish the race like that makes sense i mean they they do that in crashes in other forms of motorsport they'll they'll you know they'll flag everybody down essentially pause the race and then remove the debris from the track because that's the other thing you've just created a huge hazard that's likely to cause more accidents all the debris actually went into the stands there isn't anything on the track how's that for horrible yeah okay that that, the track itself is perfectly clear the wind the wind was taken completely out of my sails with that point yep okay it's it's awful on top of oh yeah i apologize no this is just spoonfuls of awful being ladled atop each other with a little sprinkle of awful on top. Okay. So there is a huge investigation following this accident. And one in the end, <laughs> one would think. In the end, the accident is found to be an accident. Yeah. Uh, the track itself is found to be at fault. Okay. Okay. Remember, it's a mix of almost like city streets yeah. and racetrack and highway. And it was designed for races that were taking place in the 1920s. This group, the Automobile Club of the West, takes the year and 300 million francs to improve the course and build safer grandstands. Okay. They add a fence and a wall and a lot of space between the track and the spectators. Uh, they also design safer pit area with a straight deceleration lane and easy access. Okay. Or easier access. Sure, yeah. I mean... And then all across Europe, racetracks use the Le Mans accident to rethink their own race courses. Okay. Le Mans is not a unique race course. There are several courses on the Grand Prix that yeah. use kind of similar, not exactly purpose-built racetracks. Isn't there one in like Monte Carlo that drives right through the city or something? Yeah, there are some crazy ones. That's cool. So at this point, people are looking at Le Mans and going, hmm. I wonder <laughs> if we should make some changes, which is a good thing. Yes, that is a good thing. Uh, There have been fatalities at Le Mans since 1955, but nothing on the scale of that crash, which remains the deadliest accident in motorsports. Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised. Yeah, and it's like head and shoulders. I was going to, it's hard to top. Not that we're challenging anyone. Yeah, no, please don't try to break that record. (laughs) Please design your race courses for safety. On a happy note. Sure. The American driver, John Fitch, continues racing. Okay. He is a pretty hardcore racing guy. He sets a world record for driving backwards at 70 years old. <laughs> that's And he right, races awesome. for the last time at 87 years old. Wow. 
Okay. Uh, he's also an inventor. He gets into inventions and ends up with something like 15 patents on safety equipment in race cars. He also okay. invents the Fitch Barrier. Those are those big yellow and orange plastic barrels that you see on the side of the road, the ones that are full of water. Yeah. Yeah, that's he John Fitch. That. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Good for him. So that is the 1955 Le Mans crash. Thanks again to Yikes. our listener, Daniel, who suggested it as a topic. I learned a lot on this one. I am not familiar at all with racetracks or car races. Yeah. You know, it's really fascinating once you get into it. Everything from the from the physics of how race cars are designed. I, I saw mm-hmm. a quote during this that was something like, you know, um, uh, it's like a race car is to a regular car as a space shuttle is to you know, a twin engine Cessna, like you kind of have the same idea, but they are very different machines. They're similar in some ways. Yes. They have four wheels. Well, some of them Uh, don't. One is very, very expensive. (laughs) It can do more. Yes. You know, and it is a really cool, uh, for, for automakers to come up with interesting new ideas. I mean, everything that, that they come up with for racetracks filters down into commercial vehicles you know like uh, we wouldn't have the same kind of fuel efficiency if people hadn't figured out how do you stretch you know a gas tank to its absolute limit so Mm -hmm. that's kind of neat and uh we would have a lot more car fires if they hadn't realized that magnesium's a bad metal to make them out of folks yes you win some you lose some badly (laughs) this is how we learn this is how we learn uh yeah so i learned a lot you want to go to nascar next time i'm up nope what is the kind of racing where you have like a really beat up car and you drive it around and the car that's that can move after it crashes into all the It's called Demolition Derby. Demolition Derby. That is the kind of race I And want it's to you take person. an absolute junker car and you basically mm-hmm. play real life bumper cars with a bunch of other junk cars and the last the last car that is still able to move and it doesn't need to be moved forward it just needs to be able to move uh wins. <laughs> I have seen, I, I, I remember going to like a county fair when mm-hmm. I was in probably grade school and seeing one of these and just like, <laughs> I just remember like they gave them all like goofy names, like, yeah, you know, it's not my cup of tea, but I'm, I'm not here to begrudge somebody a good time. Do you know why that would be safer than Le Mans? Cause you're only going like 12 miles an hour when you smash into somebody. And you have seatbelts. And you have seatbelts and roll mm-hmm. cages. For safety purposes, we have to we have to recommend demolition derbies <laughs> over professional yes. race car events. Yep. Yes, uh, the American Demo Derby Racing Association, which I'm sure is a real thing. Please call us. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let Ellen know. Excuse me? <laughs> it's please let I'll us know. If we got anything wrong, please let us uh-huh. know. <laughs> you can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, and you do, why not use our Instagram yes. at relative dot disasters if you messaged us recently i yeah. uh, have to go in the apology corner for a minute because i go to the apology corner put on the apology <sighs> hat so tight and it gives me a headache 
I have been missing all these messages that people, lovely people, have been sending us since we started our Instagram account over a year ago. I think I found them all and caught up. And uh, if you sent us a nice message or a terrible message and it got lost, I apologize. I will keep an eye on that from now on. Can I take the apology hat off, please? Yes. It's not my color. Okay. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? Well, we are going to... uh, I'm going to posit a little hypothetical scenario to you. Imagine that you uh, were in some kind of accident, Mm -hmm. right? And... You suffered third-degree burns over half your body. Your your quality of life was just destroyed. You had to get skin grafts, all mm-hmm. this stuff, right? Okay. So that's the disaster. But wait, there's more. For decades afterwards, mm-hmm. you're going to be made fun of and seen as a uh, as somebody who, who started a frivolous lawsuit. On the next episode of Relative Disasters... We're going to break down what happened during the Liebeck v. McDonald's court case.